Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today, we're going to talk about the Democrats finally putting a voting rights bill with full Democratic support on the floor for a vote and Biden's major statement on the filibuster. I interview Congressman Adam Schiff about the January 6th commission and whether we're likely to see Trump testify. And I'm joined by the editor-at-large at The Daily Beast, Molly Jong-Fast, to discuss the lopsided media coverage of Democratic and Republican administrations. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. This past week, the Freedom to Vote Act was put on the Senate floor for a vote. It was the first time that a voting rights bill with full universal support from every single Democrat was introduced. This came after months of negotiations led by Joe Manchin and ended with a bill that was endorsed by everyone from Barack Obama to Stacey Abrams. And it includes desperately needed provisions like allowing for automatic voter registration, at least 15 consecutive days of early in-person voting, same-day voter registration, no-excuse mail voting with free postage, the ability to count all mail-in ballots postmarked by Election Day, and to count all provisional ballots regardless of the precinct they were cast in, makes uh, Election Day a federal holiday, restores voting rights to former felons, combats partisan gerrymandering, establishes federal protections to protect election officials from partisan interference, protects election workers from intimidation, requires paper trails for voting machines, and there's more, but those are the main provisions, so needless to say, a good bill and one that was very expectedly blocked by Senate Republicans. Schumer put the Freedom to Vote Act up, and every single Republican filibustered it. Vote was split down the middle 50-50 before Schumer changed his vote to no so that he could bring it up for a vote again later. So it failed 49 to 51. And remember, this was just to start debate on the bill. It didn't even get an actual vote. But again, because there's an arbitrary 60-vote threshold that we could make go away but choose not to, we're stuck suffering the consequences of passing no legislation. However, with that said, there was actually some movement this week as far as the filibuster is concerned. Joe Biden held a town hall and he was pressed on voting rights in the filibuster. And here's what he had to say. But I also think we're going to have to move to the point where we fundamentally alter the filibuster. The idea that, for example, my Republican friends say that we're going to default on the national debt because they're going to filibuster that and we need 10 Republicans to support us is the most bizarre thing ever heard. I think you're going to see, if it gets pulled again, I think you're going to see an awful lot of Democrats being ready to say, not me, I'm not doing that again. We're going to end the filibuster. But it's still as difficult to end the filibuster beyond that. That's another issue. But but, but are you saying uh, once you get this current uh, agenda passed on uh, spending and social programs, that you would be open to fundamentally altering the, the filibuster or, or doing away with it, or doing away with it? Well, that remains to be seen exactly what that means in terms of fundamentally altering it, <clears throat> whether or not we just end the filibuster straight up. Um, there are certain things that are just sacred rights. One's a sacred obligation that we never going to renege on a debt. We're the only nation in the world. <laughs> we have never, ever reneged on a single debt. But when it comes to voting rights... Voting rights you, is equally as consequential. When it comes to voting rights, just so I'm clear, though, you would entertain the notion of doing away with the filibuster on that one issue? Is that correct? And maybe more. 
and maybe other issues. Now, of course, Biden can't reform or eliminate the filibuster himself, but let's not pretend for a second that his voice in this fight wasn't desperately needed. Without Biden supporting filibuster reform, without him using the bully pulpit of the presidency, there was no chance that the other filibuster defenders changed their position, namely uh, Manchin and Cinema. But to see Biden move on this issue, knowing that he himself is a defender of the filibuster and has held out for, you know, an uncomfortably long time, will hopefully be the kick in the ass that Manchin and Cinema need. Like, to know that the ultimate institutionalist, Joe Biden, recognizes the need to alter his position here is arguably more effective than the pressure campaign that they've been dealing with for the last several months by, uh, well, by people like me. And by the way, Biden's movement here is especially needed given the fact that, you know, my main criticism is that this administration hasn't been able to see the forest through the trees thus far. And they're focused on the Build Back Better Act and infrastructure, and that's all fine and good. But voting rights are foundational. Without voting rights, without shoring up the foundations of our democracy, let's be honest, it won't matter what we stand for because we won't have the means to enact any of it. If we sit by and let Republicans gerrymander Democrats out of government, we could take to the streets and march for women's reproductive rights and climate change and a living wage all we want. It won't matter because we won't hold any power to actually implement any of it. It all starts and ends with voting rights. And so to see Biden spend this precious sliver of time where we have unified control of government on roads and bridges is frustrating because what are we doing? Are we trying to pass the last ever infrastructure bill? Is that the goal? It's just bizarre to me that we're worried about roads and bridges while Republicans are focused on the bigger picture of allowing themselves to entrench permanent minority rule. Now, with that said, here's the flip side of that argument. Most people in this country don't know that Republicans are suppressing votes and gerrymandering districts and purging voter rolls. And even if they did know, they probably wouldn't care because what most people care about are issues that impact them. And so in response, we do need the Build Back Better Act to pass because even if the most pressing need right now is to shore up our democracy, the mandate that Biden was elected with was to, you know, quote unquote, build back better. It was to lower housing costs and drug costs. It was to combat climate change, to fix our crumbling infrastructure, to rebalance our tax code. And so I don't think his decision to focus solely on this is without merit, even if it's still frustrating for political junkies who see the raging inferno in front of us and wonder why the fire department isn't showing up. So now, you know, with Biden on board for filibuster reform, all eyes turn to Manchin and Cinema, And I just want to focus for a moment on the principal argument that they use against it which is that eliminating the filibuster could ultimately hurt Democrats when Republicans take the majority. But here's the thing. Think about what Republicans' top priorities are. Tax cuts for the rich and confirming conservative judges. The filibuster is already eliminated for both of those. As of 2017, you only needed a simple majority to confirm judges, which led to the confirmations of Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And they passed their 2017 tax cuts for the rich with only a simple majority as well. It is Democrats who are disproportionately hurt by the inability to pass legislation. Republicans benefit from the status quo. They'd be fine if nothing else passed. Republicans benefit from a tax system that overwhelmingly favors the rich, from having zero federal protections for abortion, from allowing red states to suppress voters of color or other traditionally Democratic voters. Doing nothing helps Republicans. And by the way, everyone knows that, but that still hasn't stopped people like Kirsten Cinema from pretending that we shouldn't pass any of our agenda because the threat exists that Republicans could possibly pass bad laws at some untold point in the future. And so instead, we're supposed to just sit around with our tails between our legs because we're too scared of the prospect of something bad happening, as if something bad isn't already happening. 
as if states aren't gerrymandering Democrats out of government right now, as if states aren't suppressing the votes of minorities right now, as if states aren't banning abortion right now, as if the ultra-rich aren't paying a fraction of what their secretaries are paying in terms of percentages of their incomes right now. So we can either fix these things today, or we can, you know, cower in fear at the prospect of Republicans abusing their power in the future while also watching them abuse their power at this very second. So at this point, here's what will happen. We'll pass the Build Back Better Act and the bipartisan infrastructure package and deliver a transformational package to the people that elected Democrats to do exactly that. And then all eyes will turn to voting rights. And it'll be up to Biden and Schumer and anyone else in the Democratic leadership to ensure that this gets done, to convince Manchin and Cinema to reform the filibuster so that the very bill that Manchin himself crafted could actually pass. And that'll be make or break. If Biden makes that happen, he deserves every ounce of credit for it. And Democrats can govern a country where its people have fair representation and where we still have the ability for a fair shot at being in power. And if he doesn't, then the consequences will become pretty clear. But for now, even though things are moving slowly, there's something to be said for the fact that they are moving in the right direction. Next up is my interview with Congressman Adam Schiff. Today, we've got the congressman for California's 28th district right here in L.A., the chair of the House Intel Committee and the author of the new book, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Adam Schiff, thanks for coming back on. It's great to be with you. So let's start off with the January 6th committee. The House has just voted in favor of this. So what does a full House vote in favor of holding Bannon in contempt mean? Like, what are the next steps here and how will this process play out? Well, I think it means uh, in its essence that the rule of law is back, that no one's above the law. If you thwart uh, a lawful subpoena, that you'll be prosecuted. Um, I, I, you know, it should be the same for everyone. Uh, I know uh, if my constituents got a subpoena to appear in court or before Congress and just ignored it, they would be arrested and they would be prosecuted. It shouldn't be any different for Steve Bannon. Uh, so now that it's uh, past the House floor, it will go off to the Justice Department uh, the Justice Department has a duty to present it to the grand jury. It's not always the case that they do. Uh, but here, I think there's good reason to be optimistic. Uh, I think the attorney general understands that we have to validate the principle that no one's above the law. And we have to give uh, meaning uh, to compulsory process when Congress is doing its oversight. Uh, so I think it'll send a powerful message to others who, who might contemplate ignoring uh, lawful uh, process. Uh, and also, Steve Bannon is a key witness predicting the day before January 6th that all hell was going to break loose. Well, you know, speaking of the DOJ and some of the action that, that we've seen or lack thereof, you know, aside from the committee itself, we do have the DOJ that's given the responsibility of taking action here against some of what we know are illegal offenses. Like we have audio of Trump literally asking the Georgia Secretary of State to find 11,780 votes. Do you think that Merrick Garland should be more aggressive here? And I know this is a leading question, but isn't the failure to impose consequences just tacit permission to do it again? I am deeply concerned that uh, Donald Trump and others uh, take away the message that you can't be uh, prosecuted while you're the president of the United States. Uh, and when you leave the presidency, you can't be investigated or prosecuted. Uh, I understand, look, it's a difficult decision to uh, potentially prosecute a former president, but I think you, you have to conduct, conduct the investigation. You have to find the facts, uh, and then you make a decision about where the public interest lies. But we can't ignore what took place, and you point uh, to Exhibit A, in my view, which is Donald Trump tried to get the Secretary of State 
in Georgia to commit a fraud, right. uh, to declare that there were thousands and thousands of votes for, for him, Donald Trump, that didn't exist. I think if anyone else had done that, they would have been indicted by now. Uh, now, it may be that the Justice Department is pursuing it. Uh, they're just keeping it a very good secret. Uh, but generally, when there are grand jury proceedings, uh, you know, they, 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 at least the existence of them uh, makes its way into the public domain. Uh, so I am concerned that we not establish a precedent that uh, a president is too big to fail and a president is too big to jail. Yeah. And, and you know, just to to speak on the fact that it's a difficult decision to move forward with prosecutions for people like Donald Trump, I don't think that it's any more difficult than it would be to contend with another January 6th. Well, I, I agree. Uh, you know, right now, the former president is pushing the same big lie that led to the insurrection. Uh, and also working to try to get state legislatures around the country to strip independent elections officials of their duties so that the next time they try to overturn an election and run into someone like Brad Raffensperger, who won't find 11,780 votes that don't exist, they will have in place somebody who will. Uh, so uh, I, I think we're on a very dangerous path uh, to um, undermining the integrity of our elections, casting doubt on the whole process. Uh, and if people don't believe that their vote uh, is can be used to determine who governs and uh, and to decide disputes, then it leaves uh, the country open to violence. And we saw that all too clearly on January 6th. Right. Now, do you imagine that Trump and Pence will, A, be called to testify for the January 6th committee and B, comply with calls to testify? Uh, you know, I think all of us on the committee uh, Democrats and Republicans are determined to get to the truth, and uh, and we will call anyone necessary to do so. Uh, so we haven't taken anybody off the table, including the former president or the former vice president. Uh, I'm not in a position to announce any decisions with regard to that. I think there's a lot of investigative work that we want to do, need to do before we reach that point. Um, but uh, you know, our view is we want to write the definitive report. We want to shed light on this terrible tragedy. And we want to write recommendations that will help protect the country going forward, just like the 9-11 Commission did. And anyone who has relevant information um, that we need, we will go after. Now, what are the range of outcomes uh, in terms of consequences for some of the major players like Donald Trump, like Steve Bannon, or even the other congressmen who were alleged to have uh, been involved in planning? And, and does the committee have any authority beyond recommending punishments to the DOJ? Can it actually, you know, is there a way to, is there any enforcement mechanism? There's no way to really enforce uh, a prosecutorial decision. Uh, and so we are left to the discretion uh, properly exercised by the Department of Justice. This is why, frankly, over the last four years, our system broke down. Uh, Bill Barr, when he was attorney general, was not about to enforce the law against those lying to cover up for Donald Trump. Uh, indeed, he was using the Department of Justice to intervene to reduce the sentence of one liar, uh, Roger Stone, who was convicted of perjury, uh, and to make the whole case go away against another liar, Michael Flynn, who lied to the FBI uh, and pled guilty to it twice. Uh, so, uh, you know, Bill Barr was also someone, frankly, that we held in criminal contempt. Uh, and if he wasn't about to prosecute himself, and he wasn't, he wasn't going to prosecute others uh, who were similarly covering up for the president. But it's a whole new uh, ballgame now because we once again have a Justice Department devoted to justice uh, and not the person or personal interests of the president. 
And so uh, just going back to the, the previous question, you know, it, the range of consequences for some of the major players in terms of what the DOJ can do, what would we be looking at? Well, you know, uh, I guess there are a couple of different parts to that. There's the question of what happens to people who don't cooperate when they're subpoenaed and, and they here will face uh, up to a year in jail and up to $100,000 in fines. Um, for those that may be implicated in the insurrection itself, um, Congress doesn't have the power to prosecute them, uh, but we do have the power to expose their, their role, their misconduct, whatever involvement they had. Uh, and that might help inform the Justice Department about whether a crime has been committed. Um, we also have remedies in the House. Uh, we can bring people up on ethics charges. Uh, if the, their involvement was serious enough, we could even consider expulsion from the House. Um, but the, the criminal remedy, uh, the prosecutorial remedy, is not one that Congress enjoys. Unfortunately, there's a feeling that I think a lot of us get that we won't actually see any accountability and that, you know, yet again, the same people who've committed crimes before in broad daylight with the whole world watching are going get, to get away with it now. So can you speak to that sense, you know, and, and do you echo that, that same, uh, same sense of futility, really? Well, I can understand why people feel that way. And it was certainly a great frustration to me over the last several years that uh, you had individual number one uh, named an indictment in the Southern District of New York, who uh, it was clearly Donald Trump. Uh, and in that indictment, uh, it says individual number one directed and coordinated a criminal scheme involving Michael Cohen. Well, the Justice Department argued that Michael Cohen had to go to jail uh, because he was coordinated and directed. So what's the argument that the guy who did the directing and did the coordinating gets a pass? So I understand the frustration. Uh, it's a frustration that I share. Uh, and, and more than that, you know, people watched witness after witness in the Russia and, and Ukraine investigation um, decide that they just were not going to cooperate. Now, we ended up impeaching Donald Trump uh, for obstruction of Congress. But there didn't seem to be many repercussions for the actual people who did the individual obstructing. Uh, that's changed because we now, as I mentioned, have a Justice Department devoted to justice. But I, I certainly understand the frustration. I share it. Uh, and I view this contempt, this criminal contempt um, that we have voted on with Steve Bannon to be an early test uh, in terms of whether our democracy is recovering. Has there been anything else that you've done uh, within Congress to rectify some of the more egregious examples of corruption from the internal side? Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, I, uh, I talk about this in the book I raised with the speaker about a year and a half ago, the need to have our own post-Watergate reforms, uh, a whole series of measures designed to address the abuses uh, of the last uh, several years. Uh, so I, I introduced the Protecting Our Democracy Act. We hope to take it up uh, as early as next month. Uh, and it would expedite congressional subpoenas. It would stiffen penalties for violating the Hatch Act and using the federal workforce as part of your campaign. Uh, it would provide an enforcement mechanism for the Emoluments Clause so a president can't enrich themselves by having Gulf nations stay at his hotels and not even use the rooms. Um, it would strengthen protections for inspector generals and whistleblowers uh, and a whole host of other reforms to protect the independence of the Justice Department. I view that as a key part of our democracy agenda, along with H.R. 1, uh, as well as uh, the Voting Rights Act. Well, no, that's a great segue into exactly that, into voting rights, which I think is the most important. I mean, that's that's a foundational issue. So everything beyond that kind of relies on the fact that we get voting rights passed. What's the likelihood of a constitutional crisis occurring if Republicans take the House ahead of 2022 and then Trump decides to run in 2024, in your opinion? Well, uh, look, if Ken McCarthy were ever to step foot in the speaker's office, it would mean, it would mean essentially that Donald Trump was the speaker. 
because Kevin McCarthy will not stand up to Donald Trump in any way, no matter how unethical the demand may be. Um, if Kevin McCarthy had been speaker uh, in the last, after the last election, he would have decertified the results of the election. Uh, someone with that little regard for a constitution oath of office can never be allowed to set foot uh, in the speaker's office. So it would be, I think, the path to the, the end of our democracy. Uh, it would pave the way for a return to Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, who knows what the country would look like if we had to endure another four years of Donald Trump. Uh, so it's no exaggeration to say that uh, in the midterms, our democracy will really be on the ballot. Now, I'm, I'm optimistic about those midterms. Um, and, and I know people point to the historic trend in which the party in power in the White House loses seats uh, in the congressional races. But that precedent depends on the fact that in, in the presidential election, the president sweeps into office a bunch of people from the same party. Well, Joe Biden didn't sweep into office a lot of House Democrats. In fact, House Democrats lost their seats uh, in that presidential cycle. So we've already had our correction. Um, and I feel optimistic about the midterms. We're going to have to work hard, uh, particularly uh, to overcome these efforts at disenfranchisement. But our folks are heavily motivated. Uh, without Trump on the ballot, I think their folks are less motivated. And at the end of the day, it's going to be determined by who gets, gets out to vote. Now, I know you had mentioned before these Republicans targeting elections officials and replacing elections officials. Now, a lot of this happens at the state level. So is there anything that can be done federally to confront this issue? I know that, you know, with even within a bunch of the, you know, the For the People Act, the Freedom to Vote Act, there are ways for us to confront a lot of the issues that we're facing. But with regard to these, you know, that one issue of taking out uh, independent elections workers and replacing them with partisan officials, because that's done so much at the state level, is there anything that, that can be done federally? Uh, you know, it's very hard. I think HR1 and the John Lewis bill go, go some distance in trying to protect the country from those efforts at disenfranchisement and those efforts to uh, essentially tee up uh, overturning uh, a legitimate election. Um, but we also need to work at the state level. You're absolutely right. Um, if, you know, they replace Brad Raffensperger with someone who's willing to do whatever Donald Trump tells him to do, there's only so much that can be done to protect against it. Now, uh, were that situation to arise, were, were there a situation where Georgia, instead of sending a slate of electors that was chosen by the popular vote, sends an alternate slate because Donald Trump demands it? Of course, we would challenge that action in court. Uh, but uh, I hate to rely on the courts, particularly right. when we have a Supreme Court that is more partisan than it is conservative. Now, is there any discussion with you all about the risks associated with not reforming the filibusters that the Freedom to Vote Act can pass? And I know this is done on the Senate side, but still, these, you know, these are your Democratic colleagues, because I, I feel like if anyone could appreciate what's at stake with letting Republicans rig the game and gerrymander their way into the majority with a possible Trump run on the horizon, it's you. Yeah, uh, look, I think we should do away with the filibuster, but at a minimum, there should be a carve out for voting rights because as you point out, voting rights are fundamental, foundational. And if the foundation is weak or flawed, then the whole edifice on top of it comes crumbling down. Um, if the Republicans were willing to make a carve out of the filibuster so that Mitch McConnell could stack conservative justices on the court, there should be a carve out for voting rights. We cannot allow this archaic mechanism that was used to protect Jim Crow laws in the past to be used once again to protect Jim Crow laws in the future. Uh, so I, I think that's essential. And I think the only pathway is 
um, is persuading Joe Manchin of the importance of this. Uh, and I hope that, you know, taking up voting rights uh, in the Senate and seeing the Republicans are not going to support it will help make the case to Joe Manchin that um, Republicans will not support this because their whole business model is fewer people voting and particularly people of color. Uh, so uh, I view that as, as a, a vital priority for the Democratic Party and for our democracy at large. Now, in your book, you covered, obviously, the, the impeachment trial at length. And that was a trial that was marred by most Republicans' loyalty to a criminal president. But still, our institutions were just barely able to hold. But now we're in a position where there's a systematic purging of all the the non-MAGA Republicans within the party. So if we just barely held on before, how do we survive with even fewer moderates after 2022? Like God knows even if Liz Cheney is going to be around 14 months from now. Well, you know, one of the things that I, I do in the book is I profile, frankly, the people that have been courageous over this time uh, because their examples are really important. Uh, some of them we're very familiar with now. They've become almost household names like Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, uh, like Alexander Vindman, people showed great courage in testifying and defying the president uh, who called on them to remain silent and participate uh, in, in his cover-up, if you will. Uh, but there were many others, people like Dan Coats, Republican senator of Indiana, became the head of the intelligence community, refused to carry Donald Trump's lies about Korea, North Korea, or about Russia, uh, and was willing to risk his job and lost his job because of it. Um, and these are the examples that we need to inspire us. Uh, we can't all be Marie Ivanovich, but we can all figure out in our own lives what we can do to protect our democracy at a time where it's at great risk. Uh, but you're right, uh, Donald Trump has been on a four, now five-year quest to purge any uh, element of dissent within his party, anyone willing to speak out the truth, uh, anyone not willing to carry the big lie. Uh, and as long as the Republican Party is this autocratic cult of the former president, this anti-truth cult. Uh, they're just gonna be need, need to be beaten at the polls. There is no alternative. There's no accommodating an autocratic party. They just need to be beaten at the polls. Yeah, well said. And what would you say is the, uh, the, the juiciest part of the book? Uh, you know, there, I think there are a lot of stories that would be of great interest to people. I tell one, uh, for example, of Kevin McCarthy of sitting next to him on a plane, flying back to Washington, D.C. And this was this was 2010. So this was a preview of things to come. Um, we were talking about the midterms still six months away. And I said, Democrats were going to win. And he said, Republicans were going to win. And it was a total nothing of a conversation. And we get to Washington. We go our separate ways. Um, and little do I know, he goes off and he does a press briefing. And he tells the press that Republicans are going to win the midterms. And everybody knows it. He sat next to Adam Schiff on an airplane. And Adam Schiff admitted Republicans were going to win the midterms. Uh, and this comes out the next morning, and I'm just beside myself. Uh, and I rush up to him on the House floor, and I said, Kevin, um, I would have thought if we're having a private conversation, that it was a private conversation. But if it wasn't, you know, you told the press the exact opposite of what I said. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. Um, and I said, no, Kevin, I don't know how it goes. You just make stuff up, and that's how you operate because that's not how I operate. But it is how he operates. And I, and I told that story because people often ask me, do the Republicans really believe what they say in public? Uh, what do they say in private? Uh, and in private, even the leader of their party will, will basically admit uh, that he feels completely free to, to deceive others if it'll help him gain power. 
And that's why they can never be allowed to govern. Um, a party with that little regard for the truth just cannot be um, you know, third uh, in line of succession. When somebody shows you who they are, uh, believe them, you know? Yes, yes. The situation in California is pretty fluid right now. Dianne Feinstein's political future is probably uncertain in the coming years. If you weren't a congressman, is there any other role that would interest you? Uh, you know, I certainly have interest in serving my, my district, my state, my country. Uh, I want to be of use. Um, my father once gave me some very good advice when I was a kid. Uh, I write a lot about my dad in the book. Um, he said, if you're good at what you do, there will always be a demand for you, uh, which was a very liberating idea because then I just had to try to be good at what I was doing. Uh, that's what I intend to continue trying to do. And, and, and you could be the judge of whether I'm succeeding or not. But um, I'm content to let the future take care of itself. And uh, for right now, uh, while our democracy, I think, is hanging by a thread, uh, I know what my mission is. Well said. Well, again, uh, congratulations on the book. That book is Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. Uh, Congressman Schiff, thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Adam Schiff. Now we've got the editor-at-large at The Daily Beast and the host of the New Abnormal podcast, Molly Jong Fast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the media. I mean, this is a space that you're in. I think you'd be uh, well positioned to speak on it. So with the Build Back Better plan, a criticism now has been that the media is reporting more on the conflict of negotiations rather than on the substance of the bill itself. And so mm -hmm. uh, Pelosi had come out recently and actually slammed the media for focusing more on that fight, you know, than the substance of what the fight is about. So what's your position on this and how does it inform how you do your job? You know, it's a really good question, and it's something, and a lot of Democrats have come out and complained about it, including uh, Bernie, too. And, and like, what they're well within their rights to complain. And, and you'll see, I mean, and they do have a good point, which is when you report on the top line number, don't talk about what's in the bill. So people will say, oh, it's dotted a trillion dollars, but they won't be like, I can't afford to get my teeth fixed. Bernie Sanders wants to make it so that I don't have to pull out my own teeth. Now, that, in my mind, is a pretty good gig. I mean, you don't want to have to pull out your own teeth. And there are people in this country who can't afford dental. I mean, what are their other choices, right? I mean, and we are a country with a lot of wealth and a lot of really extreme poverty. So these things like eyeglasses and dental care and universal pre-K, which we don't, which we have never had in this country. So like three-year-olds just stay at home or I don't know what happens. To, I mean, if you can't afford to pay, you know, thousands of dollars a year, your three-year-old stays at home and stares at the wall. I mean, there are some real fucked up. Am I allowed to curse here? Yeah. Yes. Okay. There are some real fucked up problems with American life. I had, I had Beto O'Rourke on, I think uh, my second ever episode and he dropped a bunch of F-bombs and since then the podcast was labeled explicit. So, <laughs> so, so go for it. Okay, good. So the, the things that these Democrats are fighting for are things that like normal countries have, right? Like they have in the UK, they have it in Denmark, they have it in, in Norway, they have it in, I mean, these are like, you know, Canada you know, countries that are these wealthy, industrialized countries don't have people pulling out their right. own teeth. Yeah. Period. Paragraph. Now, it's not the job of the media 
to sell the Build Back Better plan. I personally am on the opinion side, so I can do whatever the fuck I want. But I mean, I shouldn't say that. I can't do whatever the fuck I want, but I don't, I'm not a reporter. I don't do straight reporting. So I can write an opinion piece where I say, in normal countries, people don't pull out their own teeth. But reporters have to report. Now, I would say one of the biggest problems in our country is that we have this horse race journalism. So we have, and as things get shorter, like you have all these newsletters and things are like, get smarter, like one line. Environmentalists are really down that the planet is going to be destroyed. Two sides, winners, you know, oil companies, losers, the rest of us, you know, (laughs) the world, right? The world, your grand humanity. Yeah. Right. I mean, so that kind of reporting is very problematic. That said, it's really not the responsibility of journalists, straight journalists to sell democratic policies. Now, the thing that I am always struck by is how bad democratic messaging is, right? Like who, you know, the reality is if Nancy Pelosi got up there and said, look, we don't want you to have to pull out your own teeth. We want you to be able to afford to go to the dentist, right? That's a pretty no brainer, you know? So some of what's happened is, and I think it's good. And I think Democrats are starting to try to catch up with it. And you saw Bernie did a what's in the damn bill event with AOC, which was really smart. That kind of stuff is really smart. But fundamentally, you know, you don't want a media that's selling you things, especially a straight journalist media. I think the media has been very terrible lately. And especially when it came to Trump, you know, the guy got so much attention. Nobody ever took him seriously. We were undermining, you know, the media was undermining the democracy and they didn't even know it. You know, I mean, it just, but again, how do you cover an autocracy? There is no playbook for a free me- for a free and fair media in an autocracy. Well, here's what I think, just building on what you were just speaking about. I, I do think that the Democrats are at an inherent disadvantage. And I spoke about this on my podcast last week because on the right, you know, during the Trump administration, which is an ideal scenario for them, right. they had unified control of government. They've got Fox, they've got OAN, Newsmax, The Blaze, Steve Bannon's podcast, right. whatever it is, lining up to to sell you, oh, yeah. you know, their agenda, even if that agenda is absolute dog shit. I mean, Trump blew right. up the debt to give like eighty people a tax cut. You know, yeah. I'm kidding, but like not not really. But no, I mean a corporate tax cut that is preposterous. Yeah. But on the so-called liberal side of the media, we've got, you know, now a plan that would be transformational, a package that deals with climate change and housing and education and childcare and healthcare, all paid for through popular provisions, fixing the tax code. And our side, you know, or at least the people who've right. been anointed our side are so yeah. focused on Dems and disarray to the point that nobody even knows what's in this bill. So right. we are at an inher- inherent disadvantage because the media ecosystems that we operate in are inherently different and, and right. there to do different things. Well, I would say that what I have been really struck by is that the mainstream media wants to tell the truth. The conservative media wants to help Trump. Right. So you have a real disconnect. Well, the baselines are different because they're starting at different places. Right. Now, that said, I also think part of the problem is that Democrats truly believe in their heart of hearts that if they do good stuff, people will see it. And that is bullshit. Yeah. People don't, you know, I mean, like the a great example is the child tax credit. Democrats are ending child poverty. Yeah. This is not a two sides issue. Like, 
your child, you know, child poverty needs to be ended. Children should not be born into poverty in wealthy countries. Like they shouldn't be born into poverty anywhere, but they especially shouldn't be born into poverty in a country that can afford to not have them born into poverty. And it's not that popular. It's not that popular because people are not explaining it. So, I mean, that's a crazy thing to not be popular. I mean, you want, I mean, like to think about that, think about someone saying you like, oh yeah, no, we want children to be poor. Like, <laughs> right. and the starving other side of that in the issue. street. I mean, there's yeah. no two sides of that. So I would say like, there's a certain sense Democrats have that they think if they do the right stuff, people will notice. And what we know now, and what we've really seen from Trumpism, I mean, Trump went to West Virginia and he said, I'm going to make coal great again. There is no way to make coal great again. Coal sucks. Coal is ex- so expensive that there's no world in which digging it out of the ground makes any kind of financial sense without crazy, crazy subsidies. I mean, there, it's just he cannot make coal great again. But it didn't matter because Trump doesn't care. He just lies. So Democrats have the truth and they still need to sell it, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, and I think that's something that progressive media or media that that explicitly presents itself as progressive media, which is what I do. Like, you know, I'm not doing straight journalism. This is this is progressive media should take those lessons from exactly that. Yeah. So I want to turn to everyone's favorite U.S. senator, the uh, the, the pride of Arizona, uh, Kirsten Cinema. <laughs> so I, I think it was last week's episode of your podcast, The New Abnormal, where um, you know, the question you sought to answer was, what the fuck is wrong with Kirsten Cinema? So yeah. I want to know, what'd you land on? What the fuck is wrong with Kirsten Cinema? You know, I don't know what's wrong with her. I, I think, I mean, by the way, the thing that I saw, the reporting I saw today, that where she's like against raising the corporate tax rate, like, how can you be, the corporate tax rate was like, a certain percentage, I don't know, 34%. I'm not, don't quote me, but you know, it, it, Trump raised it, uh, lowered it to 29%, right? With the idea or, or 28 or 21, I can't, I'm not exactly sure. It was 30 something, lowered to 20 something with the thought, also, he doesn't care about blowing up the deficit. And also the dumb excuse they used was that they said that if they did this, more companies would pay taxes, which again was bullshit, but okay. So she's like, I don't want to raise, I mean, like, you don't want to raise it to just what it was before Trump yeah. came in. Well, also, what's what's especially ironic about that is, is they did that operating under the pretense, even though they knew it, they all knew it was bullshit, that that companies would, you know, do whatever they needed to do to 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 justify it. They didn't. Right. It dried up federal federal revenue. It it had it led to a bunch of corporate stock buybacks like it had no impact no discernible impact and only right. bad press coverage after so that whole that whole pretense has just been shot to shit and so to continue uh defending it now afterwards doesn't actually make any sense it is just uh rid- i mean it's just ridiculous i mean she is a ridiculous person the other thing which she i don't know if she cares but like He's up for re-election. Mark Kelly's up for re-election because that's just a fill-in seed in 2022. She could torpedo him. I mean, she probably won't, but she could. She's definitely going to get primary by Ruben Gallego. Yeah. I'm very excited because Ruben Gallego is great and I can't wait for him to primary her. I mean, like, I guess she'll go be a lobbyist or something. I mean, I don't even get it, but it's like you, you know, you were a Green Party activist. Clearly, you love wine and traveling Europe. At more than you love helping people, you know, it's incredible. I mean, it's just incredible. And she's really proven herself to be a huge disappointment. 
Now, I want to end with this. You participated in the Pfizer vaccine trial, correct? Yeah. So, you know, with a lot of anti-vaxxers saying that this is an experimental drug, that we don't know what's in it, you know, you were there when it actually was, was an, experimental an experimental drug. drug. Yeah. And of course, you know, since then it's gotten full FDA approval and it's as Billions close to a surefire. Yeah, it's as close to a surefire solution as you can find. Right. So how do you feel when you hear people continue to downplay this vaccine that you yourself helped ensure wasn't just experimental anymore? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it, and you know, the, my favorite crazy thing about all of this is that they, the anti-vaxxers are against the vaccine, which billions of people have taken, but they will take monoclonal antibody therapy, which well success, you know, is really not that many people have taken. It's just preposterous. No, these people are, I mean, some of these people are legitimately crazy and some of these people are partisan hacks. I don't know which is which, and I don't even care really, but you know, we, there were a lot of people who did those trials, about 60,000 people all different people, a lot of doctors, like 20% of the trial was doctors. So it was pretty interesting group of people. I was thrilled to get to do it. My husband did a different trial. He did AstraZeneca. One of my best friends did J&J. Like I encouraged everyone I knew to do trials because I knew with vaccines, first of all, I knew that the mRNA uh, vaccine was safe. And with vaccines, you have a much higher rate of of what's tolerated, a much lower rate of what's tolerated than like, say, you know, the place I actually I was part of the trial at Yale New Haven Hospital and Yale New Haven Hospital was a was uh, did a lot of AIDS research. So they had been testing medicine that really made you sick you know, that had real side effects for people, you know, because people were desperate. But with vaccines, it's a much higher bar to clear, even for when things get to be experimental treatments. But, you know, I believe in science and I understood how mRNA vaccines worked and I'm not a total idiot. So I was happy to do it. Uh, But yeah, these people are, I mean, this is an amazing time in American life because you have people who are literally killing themselves. And what you see is the people who you see, none of the rich people are not, are doing this. Like Tucker Carlson isn't dying of COVID, right? It really, you really do see these people are just kind of encouraging their supporters to take these unnecessary risks because of partisanship. It's nuts. It's like the Middle Ages. Who, who, by the way, are dying at higher rates than people who have been, you know, yeah. encouraged to to take the vaccine. No, I so mean. It- it's 11 times, you're 11 times more likely to die of COVID if you're unvaccinated, like period paragraph. That's it. Molly, uh, the new abnormal pod, is there anything else I'm missing? No, nope, that's it. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great night. Thanks again to Molly. That's it for this episode. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review, and check out briantylercohen.com for links to all of my other channels. 